I think this time, if I'm really honest, has probably tested my mettle as a human being uh, more than any other time in my working life because it's just like there's so many moral judgments you have to make and it's how do you look after people and uh, what do you fight for and what do you let go of. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It was spring in the UK when the pandemic forced a lockdown. It's now spring in Australia, and the world is still coming to grips with the pandemic. With the most recent announcement in the UK, stating no more than six people can congregate in public together, what impact will that have on the hospitality sector, already reeling from the effects of the pandemic? Australian Sky Gingell is the chef and owner of Spring in London and culinary director of Heckfield Place in Hampshire, England. Sky, how are you going? Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. You've just reopened Spring again last week. What was it like to open the doors? Um, it felt so good to open the doors, I have to say. I mean, it was really, uh, it was just really nice. I think we'd really missed cooking and um, and actually it was just, it was funny because we'd sort of used I guess we'd gone to work every day and we'd, we'd done lots of stuff. We did an ice cream van and we did a kind of online shop. And, but um, it, we kind of never turned the lights on in the restaurant, so it looked a bit um, kind of downtrodden and almost feral. And I couldn't ever actually imagine the lights on again and, like, you know, the glasses polished and the flowers in the vases and stuff. So when that actually happened, it, it felt really nice. With that lead up before opening, when you got back in there with your team, what was it like, that sort of build up? Was it similar to opening the restaurant in the first place? It definitely felt um, the kind of anxiety of opening a restaurant for the first time was definitely echoed in the reopening. For me personally, I felt it felt, um, you know, without sounding too dramatic, I, and, and this is just a personal feeling, it felt very life and death for me. And um, I think it's been such a kind of, strange time when any decision you make is a decision that's made on kind of sifting sand that um we just I just didn't know if it was the right thing to do I mean we're in a particular location which if the economy is booming and you know um it's a really really good location it's absolutely bang smack in the center of London and uh, but nobody's in there are no hotels open there are no galleries open uh nobody's gone back to offices in london really and so it's now a kind of ghost town you briefly mentioned that you tried a couple of different models to keep money coming in what 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 was the initial impact of the of the lockdown for you and what and what were the some of the things that you did um so i think uh what happened to us was i think on about the 14th of march um, Boris Johnson came on the news and sort of said nobody go to clubs, pubs or restaurants, but he didn't actually close anyone down. So almost overnight, everything changed and and no, the restaurants became empty and all the bookings were cancelled. And then we had this sort of and really didn't know what was happening. And it was just kind of like it, it felt, I mean, I suppose for everybody, completely surreal. But so it, but it wasn't until the 17th that uh, Richie Sunak, who's um, um uh, the treasurer in 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 England uh, actually announced the furlough scheme, and the furlough scheme was absolutely a huge relief for everybody. It was amazing because you know, I mean, I have, you know, I have sixty people who work for me, and um, 
you know, that's an incredible pressure to think, what are they going to do? You know, how are they going to pay their rent? Um, but so that was that was incredible and a huge relief. But then what happened for us was that um, although furlough was, is an, was a brilliant scheme, it didn't cover what we call in England tronc, which is a 12.5 um, optional service charge which actually goes into a separate bank account and it's divided up among, uh, you don't pay national insurance on it, and it's divided up among um, all the people who work for you at the end of every month. So it really tops up people's wages by, by quite a considerable amount of money. And so that it didn't cover that. And uh, I suppose um, the thing that I really learned from having, what is a, is a small business, you know, I mean, is that you can probably stay afloat for about a week and a half, you know, because we count on money coming in all the time, you know, so you earn, you know, you do an event and you earn money for that and you're, that's paying your wine bill and then your VAT bills are coming in. And, and so what happened for us, we it, the doors were just shut in front of us. It literally was like the doors shutting in front of your face. And then the tsunami comes in from behind. So we just were flooded with bills and, um, and also um, just finding a way to top up people's wages so that they could actually pay their rent. And like, you know, so many people I have work for me have children and, you know, and it could have, it was catastrophic. For, wherever you looked for our industry, it felt very catastrophic. So everybody who works for you, but also all the fishermen and the small farmers, you know, I mean, everything just was, the taps were turned off overnight. And, um, and so, uh, we we sort of tried to repivot very quickly because we work with one farm. So I've got this commitment to Fern Barrow, a biodynamic farm in Herefordshire, and we take everything that she grows. So we are her one source of income. And so we kind of decided, and we we kind of created this little online shop with Shopify. It was like super cheap, 150 quid or something to like set it up. And we just started doing veg, vegetable boxes and deliveries. And over the six months that increased to cooked food and um, we started with breads and butters and all the things that we make at the restaurant added on. And, and so we've, we, we've continued to do that and we'll continue to do that post uh, now that we're open. Wow. Did you ever think that that's something that you would be doing, having um, been an award-winning chef all over the, the globe? Uh, do you know what? I had a, um, I had, I've always dreamed I'd love to be a greengrocer. <laughs> so I've oh. always kind of had this dream to do like um, veg boxes and produce, um, uh, create, you know, making jams and cordials and all of those things and selling them. So in a funny way, like it, um, it was a, a kind of clear space for us to do something different that we'd talked about, but we'd never really got together because we were kind of very busy and you never had enough people on board to kind of action it. And so from that point of view, I mean, um, it was that was the one good thing for us that came out of lockdown. There's been uh, government support, which you you mentioned, but there's also been a lot of restaurants that won't be opening again in the UK. How, how have you felt during this time with that uncertainty leading up to the opening of spring? I mean, you know, I, I suppose if I if I'm really honest, I I we may survive, we may not survive. I mean, you know, our business plan does not. Um, was not built on social distancing or um, no events. It, it just wasn't, that wasn't the model it was built on. And so it doesn't match with the rent we have to pay, the VAT we have to pay, the rates we have to pay. And um, 
So I think, you know, for us too, like, you know, more will be revealed. We'll just, it's just day by day and like just working as hard as we can to be the best we can. But, um, you know, I've had lots of friends who've lost restaurants or one or two restaurants or multiple restaurants or, you know, and some really beautiful little tiny neighborhood restaurants and young chefs have gone down, which is, I find just been heartbreaking. And um, I think this time, if I'm really honest, has probably tested my metal as a human being uh, more than any other time in my working life because it's just like there's so many moral judgments you have to make and it's how do you look after people and uh, what do you fight for and what do you let go of uh, it's been it's been really really challenging and I have if I'm I'm just going to be honest I've really struggled through it it's it's been probably the most um, difficult thing to navigate you mentioned that you know you weren't sure whether to open spring or not, whether that was the right thing, and um, what what are the restrictions at the moment that sort of the limitations that you have in trade? So, um, so all restaurants opened on July the fourth. Here, you could reopen. Not all restaurants reopened, but you could reopen on July the fourth. We chose not to, because at that time we simply couldn't afford to unfurlough people. All our money was gone. We just. Um, we just, it was easier almost to keep people on furlough for as long as possible. Um, uh, but then, um, and none of the schools had gone back. And August in, in London is a very, very quiet month for restaurants anyway, because most people go away, and especially the West End. So we waited until September. Um, I, the restrictions for us are all the kind of social distancing requirements that you have to put in. So we had to take out probably five tables in the restaurant to create the right distance. Um, and then like things like temperature checks and um, all of that stuff. I mean, it's been very unclear here. I mean, the government has, it's like bonkers. I, 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 would, um, I would challenge anybody in England to know exactly what the rules were and weren't. But on Monday, which was yesterday, they brought in a rule that no more than six people can congregate together. But I think that means the same family. So I think it's probably a maximum of six people at a table. But then in theory, you could put 80 people in a restaurant if you had the right social distancing. So um, I think that really rules out for us events. And, uh, and that is a blow because between now and Christmas, um, traditionally, is, you know, you've got huge, it's a really good time of the year. It's very busy for events, Christmas parties, you know, all of those kinds of things. So... I guess all of that will, uh, we won't see any of that this year. With those limitations, has that affected the way that you structure your menu and the sort of food you do and the offering that you have? Um, well, yeah, I mean, we've reopened. So we used to have, for example, I mean, we're, we're a shadow of the business that we were because we, um, we used to have, for example, 24 chefs in the, in the kitchen on a, on a, on a kind of, um, on a rotor system. So not never 24 at one time, but um, we're down to 10 chefs um, running the service. We're not opening for lunch. We're only opening five evenings a week for dinner. Um, I Front of house is, is, you know, I've lost most of, I think we're down to about 10 front of house altogether. And so from a business of 60 people, we've gone down to about 22. I know. And, um, uh, and so we have actually done a shortened menu. Um, 
just because in terms of prep and all the stuff that we do at the restaurant, it's quite labor intense because we make all the butter, the jam, the cordials, the liqueurs, the cheeses, we make everything that. So all of that's quite labor intensive. So we have shortened the menu a little bit. Um, I mean, I have been left with a really amazing team. So in some ways, just being open one week, it's sometimes it's huge. Like when you've got all these people and, and like, uh, like shift patterns changing over midday and like, Sometimes it just seems so crowded where we are and stuff. And actually, it's been it's easier to communicate on a much smaller team. I mean, uh, I've I've learned that already. And um, I think we can probably be a bit more agile with the menu because uh, sometimes changing a menu when you've got so many people in the kitchen is like it's like a dinosaur. It's like a beast to kind of change and get get the message out to everyone. And yeah, so um, but. We have got a smaller menu, yeah, and a much smaller service time. So we're literally doing five days a week as opposed to 13 services a week. What's the toll been on your staff and, and on yourself as well with that obligation of ensuring their safety and their welfare? Um, I think I think lots of people have had like different reactions, and I think that's probably been the same. I mean, we were incredibly blessed when um, we went into furlough that we had, which is so unusual for England. We had three months of the most glorious weather. So it was literally 22, 23 degrees. So like, I think at first people were kind of in denial about it because it was just like, oh my God, this is like the holiday gift from heaven. You know what I mean? I don't have to work. I'm being paid. Like I'm out in the sun. So actually the whole of London kind of came out into the parks and um, it didn't feel like a lockdown at all here in that way because there were just so many people out and about. Um, and so I think that was actually kind of quite fun for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people also got to spend time with their families and their kids, you know, especially when you do maybe like a 60 hour week, that's like an amazing opportunity to, you know, spend more time at home. But I think it was a kind of really false sort of blanket of um, furlough. And we only had in our reserves um, enough money to top up everybody's wages to where they should have been on top of furlough for three months. So once that ended and actually you're on a, a much more um, smaller way, you know, you're receiving smaller money in the month, I think everybody became anxious and really wanted to come back to work. A lot of people that work with us and in, in the whole hospitality industry in general in England are European. So lots of people from Eastern Europe, lots of people from Italy. And people went home um, to be with their families. And, um, and a lot of those people have chosen not to come back. So in many ways, it's, um, it's saved me from having to make the really painful decision to make people redundant. Um, because they just chose to stay at home. Because I think that was something that was a huge stress, um, you know, and a real moral dilemma, you know, for me is how long does a business sustain people when it really can't sustain itself? There's also, I guess, the perception of consumers and whether it's safe to go out. What, what's the response been to restaurants being open and also the last week in, in spring? What's the response of consumers been? Um, We've been like, we're, we're definitely cautiously optimistic. We had a really nice first opening week where um, the restaurant was kind of full to capacity in terms of what we can do with social distancing. I mean, but by no means do I assume that that's just going to carry on. You know, I, I don't know whether it's the novelty of spring being open for regulars after six and a half months or we just have to, I think, take it day by day. 
we did this kind of huge, like um, England did this thing in August called Eat Out to Help Out, where everybody was given, you could sign up for it and everybody could get, I think it was £10 off every meal and the government would reimburse the businesses. And I think that was a huge success um, for a lot of people really came out to that, which I was kind of amazed about because, I mean, I get it if you're going to Nando's or... But I actually, in top-end restaurants, £10 sometimes is not a make or break, is it, if you're spending £80 on a... On a um, but I think all across the board, people embraced it and were going out. And I think it probably coincided with, you know, people desperate to get out of the house um, and, and an offer. And so I think there may have been, like, this hugely false busyness in August. And we'll just have to see where it goes now in September I mean we weren't open for it so we didn't um, benefit it or not benefit from it or people couldn't come to us and benefit from it so um, I think we'll just have to see how it goes. You mentioned earlier the location of the restaurant right in the middle of London and um, it's not full of travellers and all sorts of people at the moment but it's a stunning um, building that you're in Somerset House can you tell us a bit about the location and, and how Spring started? Yeah, so it's in uh, Somerset House is um, a very, um, it's an incredibly beautiful, um, very, very large building. It was actually built as a naval building, so it's right on the embankment on the River Thames on one side and the other side it's right on the Strand, just where Covent Garden begins. So um, it's it's kind of, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's, it, it almost looks, it doesn't actually look very English. It almost looks quite French, almost like um, Versailles. It's absolutely huge. And, but it was for a long time, it kind of fell into disrepair. Um, it was actually when Nelson signed the Treaty of Waterloo. It's like, it was a kind of an amazingly important naval and military building. And then it became for a really long time, births, deaths, marriages, and inland revenue were all there. It was kind of governmental kind of building and in about 2006 I think it was um, something called the Somerset House was um, set up and it's now a cultural um, institution so it's a kind of huge gallery and um, cultural space so it's 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 beautiful I mean it's incredibly it's got lots of things happening there all the time you know specifically kind of exhibitions of young artists it's got huge studios um, for young um, and emerging artists um, and designers. It's it's just a very, it's attached to King's College, which is um, one of London's universities. And so it's a kind of, it's a, it's a really busy, engaged, interesting place. And we've been there, um, we opened up spring there in 2014. Yeah, so we're in actually one of the um, um, rooms that was actually of the wing that was Inland Revenue. So, um, uh, yeah, so so we've been there and it's, um, and it's lovely. It's right in, if people know London at all, it's right, it's next door to the Savoy Hotel and right um, by Covent Garden. And so it's an incredibly sort of uh, busy part of London it's got all the law courts are there and um the universities are there plus there's you know uh it's theater it's also the theater district so it's kind of if you're in like New York it would be like being it's in the West End so that's where so we really rely on number one offices during for lunch you know because of all the kind of um universities and law courts and things that are around there and, and then you you rely on the theater um 
uh, trade in the e early evening and then it's sort of like uh, lots of the hotels and and it's not at, it's not particularly residential is what I'm saying so in terms of being a neighborhood restaurant which I think you're actually probably in a really good place certainly in London if you're a neighborhood restaurant at the moment because I think people are staying where they live much more than they did before um, and and I think it's very hard for any offices to resume uh, until there's probably a vaccine or really good testing because they can't really navigate the lifts. That's what everybody, you know, I think if you're in a huge, like if you're in the Shard and you're, I, I don't know if Morgan Stanley's there, but if you've got 2,000 Morgan Stanley people working there, you just simply can't get people up and down in the lifts and socially distance. So all of those um, offices are completely empty. You like to uh, work with the seasons. How do you, how do you create uh, food and what inspires you uh, for your menu at spring? Um, well, I suppose, I mean, I'm, um, yeah, I mean, I think probably my biggest inspiration comes from definitely, um, I mean, I, I think as much as I'm a cook, and I genuinely think I'm a cook rather than a chef, I don't kind of particularly feel comfortable with that label. I don't know why, I just don't. And um, I, I'm as, as much interested in the environment and um, like food and in, in, um, thinking about food in a kind of sustainable, nutrient-dense um kind of clean soil kind of way. So I suppose my biggest environment, um, inspiration comes from my relationship that I have with, I think I mentioned her before, Jane Scotter from Fern Vero, and the growing, um, the planting um, <clears throat> lists that we do and the growing that we do. And I, I, I think it's she, in a way, she, um, what she grows and what's in season and what she can deliver to us um, when she harvests twice weekly is kind of how we write our menus. Uh, so she would definitely, it, would definitely be my biggest inspiration. I mean, my food is like super simple. It's not particularly technique driven. Although I think we're very, uh, we take pride in being like incredibly accurate and doing things really, really properly. But it's not what I would ever describe as clever food or um, if it like, if it's delicious and it dazzles you, it does because it's so simple as opposed to it's complicated. Why did you become a cook? Um, I became a cook because I, uh, it was an it was a happy kind of accident, really. I, I, uh, I grew up in Sydney. I started a law degree at Sydney University. I got a job washing up in a little charcuterie in Double Bay when I was like 18 to sort of pay my rent. And, um, uh, and I really didn't enjoy going to university and I really fell in love with everything that they were doing in this little charcuterie. And there was a woman there called Leila Sofi who just really mentored and, and inspired me and like really took the time to kind of show me, like I, I'd be washing pots and she'd say, do you want to come stand next to me while I make this mayonnaise or I'm making a stock this afternoon, should we do it together? And And I just really loved it and I felt like, I, I knew in a way very little, I mean, I, it's, I, 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 people, I always say, I didn't, I grew up in a family that was macrobiotic, so I grew up in a family where food was unbelievably important, but not necessarily delicious, and, um, and so I, I didn't sort of really learn anything from my mother or my grandmother, not, not that they're bad cooks, but that it wasn't a sort of like, it, it really came from this one woman, Leila Sofi, and I, I, I remember that all the time because I, she, her kindness and her, um, her willingness to spend a little bit of time with me completely transformed my life, really. And 
from there, I was also kind of like obsessed with her and everything she did I wanted to do. And she'd gone to school in Paris. And so about two years, I stayed there for about two years, ended up leaving university after the first year, working full time at the charcuterie and then going to Paris. And I've, I've, I've been cooking ever since. Well, you cut your teeth in some pretty amazing restaurants in France and, and England. But what were the most influential moments on your career in, in those restaurants? Um, I suppose, I, I think you're probably definitely the, I, I am anyway, I can't speak for anyone else. I'm very much the sum total of all the people that I um, I worked with over the years. And I mean, the first thing I need to say, I, I really have to say honestly, is like, I'm not like, um, I mean, I love working under stress and I love being busy and I'm happy to work seven days a week. I don't necessarily like the traditional kind of um, format of a kitchen brigade. So I wasn't particularly happy for quite a long time. Like I fell in love with cooking. I went to work in Paris. My first job was at um, a restaurant called Dodin Buffon in Paris and I got the shock of my life. And then I came to London and I worked at the Dorchester Hotel with um, a, a very you know, famous uh, Swiss chef called Anton Mosserman. And I got another, I got a shock too. It was 150 people in the kitchen. There was no natural daylight. It was just like so, um, so kind of, it was like factory work really. And then I was really lucky and I started working with um, a chef called P Peter Gordon, a New Zealand chef who was just gorgeous and uh, did all that very kind of what they used to call Pacific Rim cooking, which was kind of all of the influences from like Australia and New Zealand. And he was like amazing. And then I worked with Fergus Henderson and Fergus and Margot Henderson from St. John. And that was a really different way of cooking. And then I suppose all the time I learned so much. They're actually sort of my peers, but I always, they were kind of probably doing more original things at that time than I was. And I, I learned so much from them. And I think I, then I, when I went to Petersham Nurseries in 2003, I think I probably really um, found my own voice, kind of particularly working with a vegetable garden. And, uh, and that really defined my cooking and kind of formulated my style or sealed my style, I suppose. Could you compare what it's what the food industry is like in the UK to the restaurants that you see back here in Australia? Do you get much of a chance to come back to Australia and experience what's happening down here? Yeah, no, yeah, I do. I come back um, probably uh, once or twice a year and I've got quite a lot of um, really nice friends in the industry out there. And um, gosh, so, I mean, I think Australia in general, I mean, we were... A lot more Australians were much more food savvy and sophisticated around food a long time before England was or because I think we were so close to Europe and uh, it was that very kind of when I first started cooking here and when I went to the Dorchester Hotel there was basically two types of restaurants there were kind of Michelin starred hotel food so it was the Rue Brothers, Anton Mosserman, um, uh, I've drawn a blank but there's so many others and then and then there was kind of Pizza Express, which was a chain, but there were not, there was nothing in between. And I kind of, we grew up, I don't, I grew up going out, like, even when we were at school, you know, we, it was quite cheap to eat out. And there were so many gorgeous, like, hole in the wall, so you could go to Vietnamese or Korean or Italian and eat out probably for like $20 and bring your own wine. And, you know, so I think Australians are very accustomed to sort of eating out and had a sophistication and and openness around food much more than England did. I think 
The UK has very definitely caught up, but probably only in the last five or six years has been this incredible explosion. Um, and it's and I definitely think some of the most interesting food in the world is coming out of um, England now. I, I suppose specifically London, but there's some incredibly talented young chefs working. But I think um, I. But I also have to say, like I really, I, I, this is just a personal thing, and I don't want to be rude to anyone. But I think that I know Sydney better than Melbourne. But I think the Sydney restaurant scene went flat for quite a long time, I used to come home and I go, oh my God, it doesn't feel like there's anything very interesting or new. Or It had almost plateaued. It, it had a, a level of very goodness, but not, no fairy dust. There was no kind of like, it didn't feel like there were any kind of stars on the scene. And then I think probably in the last five or six years with like the emergence of like Danielle Alvarez and Josh Nyland and um, there, uh, uh, I'm like, I, I, I can't think of his name. Uh, the guy from Esther, which is like almost my favorite restaurant in Australia. Yeah, Matt Lindsay. Matt yeah. Lindsay, exactly. Or Josh Fleet up at Fleet. I mean, like, I just think there's, I think Australia is quite on fire at the moment. And I I feel that it's really got its own point. I think all of those chefs have their kind of very distinct and beautiful points of view. And so I find um, like what's happening. And I, I suppose I can speak to Sydney a lot more because I go to Melbourne randomly once every three years for like three days or something. But um, I really, or, and Brisbane, and I don't really go. I mean, you know, when you come home, you go home and you see your family and it's a bit kind of like, unless I go home for work, which I do from time to time. I just, yeah, I think it's like, there's some really beautiful, extraordinary, like, I mean, Josh Nyland has like, like just like he's just a complete change maker about how people feel about fish. I mean, it's kind of I find that's absolutely amazing what he's doing, and I think the whole world has sat up and looked. Um, uh, in terms of art, the culinary world has sat up and looked at um, what Josh is doing. You mentioned that this has been one of the toughest periods of your life. Has it has it changed you? I mean, I'm really hoping um, on some level that it will have changed me. Like, I can't honestly um, see the change now, but I feel like in life anyway, it's, it's retrospectively, it's so interesting, isn't it? And I'm definitely one of those people when I'm in it, like I'm not necessarily sure really what's happening. I mean, I think I've learned about myself. Um, and it's definitely kind of brought up lots of kind of things for me to think about in terms of, you know, who I am, how I react to things, how compassionate am I, how selfish am I? You know, there's just been so many feelings around it. Um, and I hope that I'll be somehow a better person or um, I, f I, I feel it's what's been really interesting for me is... Um, probably how attached I am to uh to work in a way and I've a lot of it had been on a on a really selfish point of view I can from a really selfish point of view I can only say that is like um you know I had a fear of the thing I love being taken away from me and um I had kind of really mixed feelings around that like um you know, how selfish is that? How much do you need to hang on to things and not uh, let go of things if you need to and stuff? So I think probably in a year or so, I, I think there's definitely silver linings. Um, but uh, I'm not, I mean, 
some of the silver linings would definitely be that we set up the online shop that we managed to get like uh, Jane's beautiful kind of fruit and vegetables to uh, to people in a retail way and to deliver to their door. And that's always been uh, an ambition of both of ours. And uh, and so that did happen and that will continue. So that was definitely, and because there was space in the kind of busyness to do it during lockdown. So that's definitely been a uh, silver lining. I, f I feel like if I'm being really honest, um, and maybe I'm giving myself a hard time about it, but when... But when the curtain went down, as it was, because that's how it really felt for me, it was just like, just the curtain went down on um, our work. I, I'd, I'd imagine that I, I was, I would have hoped at my age that I would have had this amazing clarity as a boss and uh, like, um, and know, knew how to deal with things. And I, I didn't, I, I've sort of given myself a hard time. I feel like I didn't kind of, uh, I maybe wasn't the person I was hoping I was going to be, which is really weird. I just didn't have a clarity around it. And that was really difficult for me because um, I felt that um, clear leadership was really, really needed then. And I wasn't sure ooh, what decisions to make or how to go forward with it. Well, I think this experience has, um, well, it, it, no one could have prepared themselves for, for what has happened. And uh, I think... I don't think anyone could be hard on themselves on the way that they've uh, tried to deal with these circumstances. You mentioned how attached uh, you realised you were to the restaurant. Do you think you'll change how you operate restaurants and and what spring will be moving forward? I think we have to. I mean, the one thing that I have known the whole way through is um, that we all have to, we can't, you know, and I think that was part of my struggle that I was just talking about is we can't hold on to the old model of things necessarily, that we have to, in order to survive, we have to be able to be agile and open to change. And if we hang on to what, how we used to run restaurants or um, how, how the business model worked, that we, we may get really stuck and, uh, and actually, it you know it would definitely work against us. Well, Sky, it's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Stay safe and keep in touch. Such a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>